In 2020, New York began heading down a path to change how Medicaid pays for prescription drugs. And this spring, that journey was realized with Medicaid patients now getting their prescription drugs directly through the state, which is supposed to be able to secure lower prices compared to what individual Medicaid managed care plans could secure for their customers. While this sounds great, some healthcare facilities who had been purchasing prescription drugs at a discounted rate and investing those funds into other services, often for marginalized communities, warn that the transition will upend the help they're able to provide. To discuss how this picture has shaken out, both for pharmacists, for patients, and healthcare facilities about half a year later, we're joined on the Capitol Press Room by the state Medicaid director, Amir Basiri. Welcome back to the show, director. Thanks for having me, David. So let's start our discussion with the New Yorkers uh, who use Medicaid and need prescription drugs, and we'll expand our conversation from there. But when we spoke in the spring, you said the goal was to ensure that this transition wasn't noticeable for Medicaid patients who have prescription medications. As you look back on that transition now in, in late October, do you feel like you've been successful in realizing that mission? I do feel that we've been successful in realizing that mission thus far, David. You know, I don't want to speak about what may happen down the line, but certainly with respect to the transition, which we monitor on a day-to-day basis, we do feel that we have accomplished that mission from the patient perspective. And how do you go about monitoring that and getting a sense of what potentially a lot of people are experiencing? So we have a continuous monitoring process whereby we are looking at actual claims that are being paid, going through the prior authorization process, being rejected on a daily basis. And then we look at things routinely weekly. And we've seen consistency in terms of both the number of of scripts that are being filled from the prior period, which is the pre-transition period, I'll call it. And then we look and work very closely on the prior authorizations, looking at our call volumes, looking at what's been denied, what's ultimately being denied and then approved within the same day, things of that nature. Um, And all of the underlying analytics and and data suggests that it has been relatively smooth, if not helpful for individuals to receive the medications that they or doctors are prescribing for them. So in addition to ensuring uninterrupted distribution of prescription drugs. You noted when we talked in April that New Yorkers on Medicaid will have more options now to get prescriptions filled with more dispensaries uh, potentially in the state market than what they had access to previously. Does part of this monitoring bear that out? Are you finding that people are going to additional facilities to get scripts filled? Well, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily going to additional facilities to get scripts filled. I think they are continuing to go to their pharmacy that they had previously gone to, if not a more conveniently located pharmacy that is in our network that may not have been in their prior network. What we have seen in certain drug classes and therapeutic classes is that, yes, you know, as we've uh, turned on our preferred drug list or the NYRX formulary. There are instances and examples in which people have more options and are accessing more products, including you know things like diabetic supply products, which a health plan may have previously limited to one product or one test strip, whereas now uh, individuals have multiple options. So that can be said in other drug classes as well. 
you know, not necessarily a pharmacist, but we can certainly provide other examples of that, including antiretrovirals for those individuals living with HIV and other drug classes as well. So there's a lot of different moving parts to the idea of whether this transition has been a net benefit in terms of savings for the taxpayers. And we'll get to the increased cost part of this equation. But let's talk about just the paying for the drugs themselves. There was an idea that the state is in a better position to negotiate or secure lower prices and to administer prescription drugs at at lower cost to the state system. Has that borne out? Is the state paying less to actually administer the same amount of drugs and prescriptions as was happening under the previous system? It's a great question and one that you know we're still looking at and we'll, I'll explain a little bit of why that is not fully analyzed at this moment, but we have seen our rebates uh, have increased. So we have two sets of rebates. We have the, the what we call OBRA or federal rebates. Those are typically mandated in federal law. And then the state supplemental rebates that we negotiate um, in most cases directly with the drug manufacturer. Uh, we did project that both of those would increase. And thus far, uh, both of them have increased. They are invoiced on a lag, on a quarterly lag. So, uh, you know, we are currently looking at one quarter, maybe two quarters of actual rebates collected, and we have seen them increase substantially. We have also seen our cost increase, but the net difference uh, is still a net savings to the state thus far. But we will have to keep continue monitoring that as we get through the year. But thus far, we have seen some of those assumptions bear out. Uh, in proof uh, and additional rebate dollars received by the state. Well, I want to talk about the increased cost side of this equation. But first, let me reintroduce you for listeners just joining us. You're listening to the Capitol Press Room, and we're speaking with the state Medicaid director, Amir Basiri. So turning to healthcare facilities, which opposed this transition broadly because they said it would result in lost revenue for them and translate to cuts in services that they provide often to uh, low-income or disadvantaged New Yorkers, the state's response was to make a new pool of money available, about, I think, $705 million for this fiscal year, if I remember correctly. We're more than halfway through the current fiscal year. So is it your sense that healthcare facilities have been held harmless as the result of distribution? from this new pot of money? Yes, that is still the position that we maintain. Um, All of the payments have not been realized by the respective facilities, um, and I can go through them in detail. But we do believe that we've met the underlying intent and there have not been any uh, disruptions and, and services provided from those facilities for Medicaid beneficiaries or otherwise. The amount that the state is reinvesting is actually around $900 million gross. Some of that, it, that's broken out into a range of different investments between the hospital, inpatient, and outpatient rate increases, um, which we are loading into the managed care rates and posting on the website momentarily. Uh, the payments for the FQHCs, in which we have advanced the state share and we expect to get the federal share approved in a couple of weeks or in a matter of weeks, I should say. Uh, And then on the Ryan White Centers, which are non-Medicaid providers, they are not enrolled 
to provide Medicaid-funded services. Our partners in the AIDS Institute, who we've been working with, have initiated contracts for those organizations and dollars are flowing to them on a recurring basis as they submit information uh, to the state. And they have been pleased with sort of the process we put in place to uh, sort of recreate the process and the way the funds flew to them previously under our structure so that there was some familiarity and, and less potential disruption to their operations and cash flow. Most of the payments have gone out and the rest are scheduled to go out in the near future. And we will be expending those dollars to those facilities, even for the payments that we've made thus far, which we feel that have been made more than providers whole. We have heard generally that providers are happy with the funds they've received and sort of the state meeting its underlying commitment to the stakeholder community. Does the distribution of funds, is that focused on each individual healthcare facility getting exactly what they may have lost as a result of the transition? Or are there some, for lack of a better expression, winners and losers when it comes to how the state is doling out uh, some of this money with some facilities maybe coming out ahead and other facilities maybe running a deficit? Great question. And I would say for the Ryan White Centers and for the FQHCs, everybody wins. There are no losers simply based on the fact that, you know, we know that we are providing more funding than was needed given the cost that those entities incur for administering the program and the funding that was being diverted from those entities by the intermediaries. So nobody can be losing on the clinic side and on the Ryan White Center side. For the hospitals, there are likely winners and losers from the standpoint that the evidence and the information that we received suggests that the larger academic medical centers had been the primary beneficiaries of 340B revenue, whereas the safety net providers actually had less revenue they depended on from the 340B program. There are costs that you incur as an organization to have a 340B program and to have a large 340B program and continuing to expand it. Most of those opportunities are not available to safety net providers, or if they are, it's on a limited basis. And that's most apparent in the hospital sector. There are likely some losers in the hospital sector, the large academic medical centers, are not being made completely whole, but the safety net providers are likely benefiting. But that is very specific to hospitals, whereas on the other categories of providers, they are benefiting without question. So we're talking about the current fiscal year and the pain or gain for these healthcare facilities as part of this transition. What is the state's plan moving past this fiscal year? Is there a plan to make up the lost revenue in the coming fiscal year that starts in April 1 and that state officials are planning for right now? The investments that we made in last year's budget are intended to be sort of recurring investments such that they are by and large permanent from the standpoint that it would require statutory changes to sort of reverse some of those payments and there's no intent to do so. And that includes on the state plan amendment for the FQHCs. I don't think that there would be an interest from us or from CMS to change that. And 
now that it's in place, it is very difficult to remove without legislative support. Well, finally, uh, based on a statement put out this fall, it seems like pharmacists are very happy with the implementation of the new pay model to the point where they're probably all driving to your office to give you a high five. How have you seen this impacting pharmacies, which claimed in advance of this change to be in a precarious situation right now and still seem to be based on the fact that we recently saw a national chain declare bankruptcy? So what's your sense of this impact on pharmacies? I think the impact on pharmacies is obviously a a positive one from the standpoint that they have some predictability and understanding what they're going to be reimbursed for different types of drugs by the ultimate purchaser. Whereas before, there was a lot less transparency and there would be, you know, arbitrary decisions made by the payer, in that case, the pharmacy benefit manager that may have clawed back funding, that may have not reimbursed them adequately for the cost of dispensing or for the cost of the medication. They had a lot less power to understand how those reimbursement rates were being developed and what the basis was for the amount they received or were clawed back from. Whereas now, everything is public, essentially, as to what the reimbursement will be per drug type, including the professional dispensing fee. So I think that from that standpoint, there's likely a benefit for the pharmacies and that they're being paid more to dispense medications. But there's also some predictability. And um, as as many know, having that is makes it a little bit easier to operate your business, whereas previously, there was always an unknown about what the PBM would claw back or reimburse them for the medications they were dispensing. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Uh, We've been speaking with the state Medicaid director, Amir Basiri. Medicaid director Basiri, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Anytime, David. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information.